It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello, it's good to see you. Long time no see. I know, last week we were pretending we were back when in actual fact we recorded it before the summer and and this is the first time I've seen you. We did fess up, I think, didn't we? Yes, we did, we did. I think you look sharp and ready for action. Nobody's ever said either of those things about me before. I'm sure that's true, not true. Well, it's very nice to see you. I feel as if the Edinburgh Festival aged me by about 10 years and I wasn't even there as a performer. No, well, that's what being a spouse is. Yes, harrowing. Is the word. Yeah. Go on, tell me about Edinburgh then. So Sarah's doing her show up there and that all went great. I was there providing emotional support, but also with Jean. And the great thing is, as you know, and as anybody who's been to the Fringe knows, the whole city gets descended upon by performers of every stripe, really, including street performers on the Royal Mile. And Jean, who is now six, he was just transfixed. Wow. And and then one day, he, he'd been asking for this over and over and over again, and one day I succumbed to one of the caricature artists. Oh, I'd like to see it. I, I'm going to send it to you. So it's the best of the best on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh in August. It's a caricature of you it's, it, or of him It's and a you. me and him together. You're right, right. It attracts the finest artists in the world, the oh, Fringe. Gosh. It's the biggest arts festival oh, in the world. And and this go guy on. was clearly good because he'd got up some of the other people who'd sat for caricatures and there was there was Rowan Atkinson. Uh, there, I hope there this was is worth the build-up. Madonna. Somehow Honestly. Marilyn Monroe, he didn't look old enough. I, mean, I, hope this a, I hope this is a better ending than the Leisure Centre story. That's all I can say. So we sat for, I would say he was such a pro, we sat for about 35, 40 minutes waiting right. for him to perfect it. And in that situation, would you be tempted to have a little glimpse? Definitely. See, I wasn't. I wanted to see the finished thing. Have you, have you, ever, um, have you ever had your portrait painted? No. But, I mean, I've had many caricatures on me. <laughs> I don't know whether you know about this phase of my life when I was living at the Labour Party. I might need to sort of remind you about it. Well, I think, I, think I, I now have new degrees of sympathy for you. I'm about to press send. Go on, uh, can, you play, can you press yeah. bloody send? So this is, this is me and Jean, as drawn by oh. a caricature artist on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. I think it's really good. I actually think it's really good. You think, you think it's Genuinely. really good of both of us? Yeah. I sent it to a friend of mine and he said, yeah. I look like a centrist Twitter user with a sex blog. <laughs> and I, I, I think you're being kind. I think there's something about the drawing of Eugene that you're not mentioning. 
I don't know. What? what, what? Sure, I think it just looks like a middle-aged woman and not a six-year-old child. Oh, uh, well, maybe that's true. <laughs> Did you not think... I mean, I, I think it looks like a lecture in feminist literature at Polytechnic. I mean, how that is a six-year-old child, I've got no idea at all. I think it's pretty difficult to do, though. If, if you'd been sent that picture without me saying who it was, do you think you would be able to tell that was me and Jean? Or would you think it was me and my second wife, <laughs> <laughs> who I enjoy outdoor pursuits with? <laughs> I don't... Yeah, OK. OK, I take the point. Well... 25 quid, that cost us. No, it's pretty good, I'd say, for 25 quid. I actually like it. Okay. You can have it if you like. Well, that's nice. How about you? How was your summer? Well, we had a nice time. We went on an adventure to Namibia, which was quite a thing. Um, it's the second least sparsely populated country in the world, so after Mongolia. So you can drive for hour upon hour and not see anybody. Um, and it's mountains and desert. I strongly recommend it. It's quite an amazing place. And is that is that what you did? You were driving? Yes. You're partly uh, tarmac roads and partly more gravelly, deserty type things. Hang on, are you telling us that Ed Miliband's been off-roading? Is this a new <laughs> Jeremy Clarkson-ish Top well, I Gear version? To be, I think, to be honest, I think I'd left that to my wife. Really. <laughs> As you can imagine. Oh, imagine. God. Does that mean that you were entrusted with the map then? Yeah, exactly. Um, you have fans. The person who organised the trip for us, uh, a very nice man called David, he is a big fan of yours. Oh, that's great. He's based in Namibia. He's listened to you for a long time. He and his wife, Charlotte, are delightful and uh, big fans. Oh, that's so lovely to hear. I think they would have loved to have a selfie with you, actually. Maybe Jeff Mania could hit Namibia. I think it's possible. I'm guessing there was some wildlife spotting element of Namibia. Amazing wildlife, honestly. What did you see? Just amazing. We saw zebras and elephants and lions and uh, giraffes and, you know, rhinoceros. I mean, it was just... Uh, Sam got quite into birds, actually. Aha! Uh-huh. They gave us something called safari bingo, which was like you, you each got a bingo card to try and tick, tick off the animals. And it was really good, actually, in the competitive nature of our family. Did you have any of your encounters with animals? <laughs> I think you're leading the witness here. <laughs> I'm just... I, think I, I sent I sent you a picture of a zebra. I think you should describe the picture of the zebra. Ed sent me a beautiful picture of a zebra, and I found it educational because I, I don't know if this was the uh, intended focus of the the photo, but um, zebras are much better endowed genital wise than I had suspected. They're apparently some of the best in the animal kingdom. We looked it up afterwards. It really draws the eye that. <laughs> I mean, it really does. Yeah. Was that awkward with your kids? No, they were sort of rather entertained by it. <laughs> I mean, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? It, it really and is. And we saw the, I mean, just to sort of go into gory details, we then saw the process of sort of retraction going on. Oh, shrinkage. <laughs> yeah. Did it remind you of your cold water swimming? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We think the zebra might have been having it. I don't know whether there are any zebra experts are listening, but the zebra seemed to be standing up but asleep, if that's possible. Do you think it was dreaming? We're maybe, yeah, we thought we wondered. <laughs> Anyhow, there's something, there's something going on with the zebra. That's a picture. If you put it on social media, your account would get suspended for three days. I think that's true, actually, so I'm not going to. Well, what a way to see out the, uh, the frying pan era as we enter the fire era yes this way indeed yeah i think when most of our listeners are listening there'll be a new prime minister more to come on that score shall we talk about what we're talking about yes 
as we're now into September, we're going back to school and we're looking at character education. And this is actually a new topic for, for me and Ed. And we had three really interesting conversations with our guests who all have really quite different takes on what it is and how character informs their work. Character education is all about how we develop and strengthen the traits that sustain a well-rounded life and flourish in society. And these can include virtues such as compassion, courage, resilience, community awareness. First up, we're going to be talking to a teacher, Beck Teague, about her school that is a leader in character education in the UK. Then we'll talk to Alex Hanratty, who's set up a social enterprise, which places character development at the centre of its work to support kids at the risk of school exclusion by helping develop connections between pupils and coaches in schools. And finally, Bruce Daisley, who talks to us about the importance of connection to build character and why resilience is a collective strength and why we can't separate adverse individual experiences from the way we deal with challenging situations. And he questions the typical notion of resilience that is so often put forward by organisations. And it's it's a great conversation. I think we were really energised by it, weren't we? And still are. And tell us, what's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? My reason to be cheerful is I'm about to send you another photograph. Oh, because character of me. No. <laughs> it is a photograph of uh, Eugene in Edinburgh meeting his first celebrity. Other than you, Ed. Yeah, I, that was a bit of a gap. <laughs> Can I just say that was a gap? So here it comes now. You'll be very impressed with oh this. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That is fantastic picture. It is Jean with Basil Brush. Boom, boom. Boom, boom. Celebrating 75 years in show business this year. I mean, he doesn't look like he's aged at all. And, do you Basil think he's Brush. had work done? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's impressive, isn't it? Yeah. He doesn't look a day older than when I was a kid. It's quite something, isn't it? Yeah. Can I just say, gene has got a lovely smile on his face. Well, wouldn't you have if you were standing well, next really... to Basil Brush? He's really loving meeting Basil Brush. Yeah, so Basil Brush is my reason to be cheerful. What's what's yours? I mean, remarkably, it's animal related. Oh, uh, and it does relate to a something that we were going to an email we we're going to talk about later on. I think, which is the foxes seem to have been vanquished in their in their quest to get into the compost by the bungee cord. Oh, so your stretchy bungee cord has done the trick. The stretchy bungee cord. But you know what's interesting is that they have gnawed away at the stretchy bungee cord, but it has not broken. And it's not just that you've been away, so there's been no food waste. Well, no, it's, it's since I came back. Okay. It's since I came back and it's sort of... I noticed that the bin was halfway, like, was out of its normal place. It had been flung around, but the bungee cord had held congratulations you've outfoxed the fox well it's not me really you bought the bungee cord i've got one for you really yeah it's a late birthday uh, maybe hold it over till christmas <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd we're going to start by talking to Beck Teague, who is head of school at the University of Birmingham School. Hello, Beck. Hello there. On instinct, as somebody who has worked in teaching, who seems like there would be the bigger problem, me or Ed? <laughs> I think I think I'd um, probably prefer you in my class, Jeff. I have to say. Right, that's the end of the interview. <laughs> 
I, I just remember the theatre, the theatre experiences from the Soam. <laughs> if we're talking about showing oh, character, this, I mean, curried favour with me. I mean, I don't know how how it's going to go. Mean, this over is a, this is this is a dismal beginning to the school year for me, isn't it? Really, <laughs> room for improvement. Beck, tell us just a little bit first about your background as a teacher, and and when you realised that the idea of character education would be an important part of that. So I've been teaching for almost 26 years now. Time flies when you're having fun, I think. About eight years ago, um, a new school was being built very close to me, a school set up by the University of Birmingham. That was the idea of Professor James Arthur, who worked at the Jubilee Centre, which was the Centre for Character Virtues at the university. And it piqued my interest. I had a look at the website And they were advertising for a vice principal in charge of pastoral systems and behaviour and pupil wellbeing. I'd never heard of character education, which sounds terrible now. So I went onto their website and it was, I suppose, a bit of an epiphany. It's almost like realising you've been trying to make a jigsaw without seeing the picture on the box. So when we'd talked in schools about wanting children to be kind and honest and have resilience and be curious learners and just wonderful citizens, there hadn't really been a roadmap or anything that shaped all of those things we were trying to do. In the description of what education provides, character education, is it part of it? I mean, that's a good question. I think if you were to ask most parents what they really wanted schools to do, and I think research has backed this up, They want schools more, in fact, to get children to be good citizens, children who can find their place in the world, who are successful, who are ambitious, who become good moms and dads, who become good employees and employers, who become good neighbours. And I think we might have lost that along the way somewhat in preference to churning out children who do well in exams. I'm not saying that's not important, but I'm not sure that that's necessarily what the underlying focus of education should be. Okay, so then we come to the school itself. Clearly, Jeff would be allowed in your class, but I wouldn't. What would strike us as different from previous schools that you were at? I think, first of all, it's important to mention that lots of schools want to do the right thing for children. I've never worked in a school where those same things aren't incredibly important. Absolutely not. No, no, no. But I think what you'd find is um, a curriculum that's structured around explicitly teaching character. So we have one lesson a week where we will actually explore Aristotelian ethics. We'll look at teaching children a virtue vocabulary so they understand the words they need to use to talk about their character development. We have two hours on a Friday afternoon where we stop teaching normal lessons and we have a really rich enrichment programme. In year nine, everyone does the Duke of Edinburgh Award. So a lot of the focus for those projects in year nine are around volunteering, social action, learning new skills, then contributes to that award. In year seven, for example, we have a lovely project called the Thank You Cafe, where children cook food and then write a little thank you note, send cakes home, biscuits home to people in their family, to their neighbours and just focus on showing gratitude for some of those things they might not forget. Um, We set homework where they have to do random acts of kindness and empty the dishwasher without being asked or tidy their bedroom without being asked. Some of 
the activities that might help them develop particular virtues. So um, they might want to be a little bit more curious. So they might join politics and tea club. They might want to develop confidence. So they join drama club. So lots of different activities to explore. Outside the hours that you've talked about, would the rest of your curriculum look similar to that at another school that didn't make this emphasis on character education or would it look different? The curriculum itself looks very similar. We still teach the same range of subjects, etc, etc. I think what might feel different is the language that we use very naturally and authentically across the school, though. The Jubilee Centre talks about character being taught caught and sought so the taught part would be those lessons where we explicitly teach around virtue um, use moral dilemmas to explore different situations the children might be in the court aspect is just learning from the grown-ups in the building and seeing character in action but in all of our lessons we'll try and draw out exemplars of when children show good character and make it explicit that that was because they showed resilience so it's making opportunities for what are implicit learning scenarios and making them explicit so the children are constantly reminded that this is an opportunity to develop character I think you'd also hopefully see that we're very conscious that as grown-ups in a school we show the sorts of behaviors that we want our children to catch We talk about all members of our school being welcoming. The staff rooms have glass sides on them, um, which was very intentional when the school was built seven years ago, so that children can see grown-ups working professionally, because for many, they don't get to really see that. Oh, my God. I I mean, I used to love just even the slightest glimpse inside the staff room. You know, (laughs) when a teacher had come to the door and you'd be able to look through the crack, and now teachers, kids could just see what you're doing on your breaks in there. It's like you say, Jeff. I, I remember when I was at school and you had to take that long walk down a corridor with a big oak door and then knock three times and hope you didn't get the grumpy geography teacher who was furious to see you. All of our teachers are available to all of our children all of the time. And despite the pandemic, a lot of them are incredibly hopeful about the future. Um, again, like in lots of other good schools. You know, you mentioned the lessons with the virtues at the heart of them before, things like resilience and confidence. So when, when you're talking about character education, have you got a list of virtues at the bottom of it that you build out from and, and design lessons from? That's a really good point. And we use the Jubilee Centre framework of virtues, which in its simplest form is divided into four categories. So moral virtues, performance virtues, civic virtues and intellectual virtues, separate virtues. And we think it's very important for our students to have and understand all of those virtues. Is character the best word? Character feels like the scaffolding, not the building. You might want to teach about kindness. Kindness is one aspect of character, isn't it? It, it, The thing we're interested in is the different aspects of character rather than... If you're saying, um, are all these virtues in themselves enough to show good character? It's not about knowing virtue. It's not about intellectually being able to theorise around courage. It's about actually being courageous And when all of those traits come together, what we hope and what we see is that children begin to make the right choices. And that to us is when we know the education side of character has made a difference. So it's about making sure that we're, for us, the description of character or the the, the point of character would be to educate that part of the self that makes 
difficult and moral decisions. So it's about how all of these virtues are then used by using phrenesis, so the wisdom to make the right choices, how all of these virtues, so I talk about kindness because it's one that we'd recognise from primary school. We also talk about justice, humility, motivation, curiosity, service. Sounds great. And, and that's why when you said, Jeff, do we have a list of virtues? We have a huge it's a long list. list. Yeah, we don't expect children to memorise it, but we need to be able to draw on all of those things in order to make right decisions. Um, Aristotle talked about the golden mean. So sometimes you'll need a lot of courage. Sometimes our children have got so much courage that they'll do silly things and take risks because they can't then mediate that with sense and wisdom. So it's it's a complex thing. And it's it's also something that whilst we start in secondary school, it's something that for many of our children they'll keep on needing to develop when they're young adults, when they're at university, when they're in the workplace. When they're in their 50s. Uh, absolutely. Um, it's not a, oh, well done, you've passed the test, you've yeah. now, you're now a person of character, yeah. here's a badge. It's very much You've got that. a GCSE in character. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Now you can drop it for A-levels. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we don't use metrics. It is a lifelong journey. It's about all the things we need as grown-ups And as teachers, it's about having that stubborn optimism that this journey is going to work because we're not this utopian place where everything's perfect. And given that we hear teachers talk so much about a downside of the job these days can be an obsession with with results and uh, quantifying the work, is is there any way that this fits into that? Put it the other way also, do you find that the metrics that are used discourage you from doing this we become teachers I think there was a teacher tap survey that said 75% of teachers become teachers because they want to make a difference to children's lives they feel that they have that moral imperative to do the right thing it's what makes a profession different from a job having the sense that you are a, um, a moral educator if we don't foreground that and if we don't celebrate that then teaching very quickly becomes about data it becomes about exams and again whilst that's very important it's the it's the stories that happen around around that really that sometimes make you celebrate success so for example on a Friday before lockdown we used to have character and cake all the teachers used to get together and we just used to share something uplifting and, and optimistic that we'd noticed during the week someone trying a new thing that perhaps they hadn't and so there's a very a, a sense in school that the school itself is a very optimistic and hopeful place teachers like working here they tell us they feel that character makes it feel different to other schools we will never stop encouraging our children to be kind and to be good citizens and and how much momentum is there behind this as an idea is it getting much take up in the department of education it has actually since the jubilee center was set up in 2012 gained a lot of traction um nikki morgan was very pro character um the jubilee center were part of lots of discussions in the department for education ofsted actually included it in their framework Schools have to show that children, I mean, it's, it's really beautiful language, actually, can reflect wisely, learn eagerly and behave with integrity, which is a really clear and important language, I think, for schools to, to hold on to, because it shows that education isn't just about tests. 
it, it's about developing children who are going to be good citizens and who are going to flourish when they become young adults. And last question, is there room in the way the the demands on schools are or oriented or could there be more room? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. I think it's certainly possible to become a school of character, to foreground character without any time, extra time and without any extra money. It's a shift in language. It's about making character development explicit in all that you do. Why I think we're in this unique position, because when we were established in 2015 as a school to develop character, we were able to recruit teachers who were absolutely wedded to the cause in the first place. We're lucky to have this hour where we can explicitly talk about character. We've made sure that our extracurricular is within the school timetable so that everybody has that opportunity. And that takes commitment from the leadership team, from the governors. It costs money. We we have the luxury to do things a little bit differently, but any school can do it. It's just a a commitment to it, really. Well, look, Becky, it's really inspiring. Jeff's coming to your classroom soon. I'm obviously not. My entry has been blocked. (laughs) I'm so pleased that you don't grade it. I would hate to get an effing character. I'll keep trying to get in. But but, uh, for now, Becky, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. To carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Alex Hanratty, who is CEO and co-founder of the social enterprise Reconnected. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's great to be here. Alex, just to start off, tell us a little bit about what Reconnected does. Absolutely. So we're a new social enterprise which has been set up to help reduce school exclusions for really vulnerable children. And we do that through a trauma-informed emotion coaching model to try and get to the reasons behind their behaviour in order to help them self-regulate their behaviour so that they're better able to learn. We constituted actually in December last year. I have two co-founders, so one in the education space, so she's been a teacher all her career. And then my other co-founder has got a psychology background. She's worked for local authorities and she's worked for the charity sector and helping vulnerable children. My background is the charity sector. We came together about a year ago to try and look at how we could use our skills to create something that was helping particularly vulnerable young people. So if I'm a young person 
is it after I've been excluded that you would work with me or is it before I'm excluded? How does it work and what, what's the kind of work you'll do? So the young people will be identified by the school and they will be at risk of exclusion. So those young people who perhaps have had a suspension, um, they are on the cusp of perhaps being permanently excluded. So we catch them before and they'll be identified by the school. It'd be their choice to take part and the family will buy in as well. And then the coach will go in and help that young person set boundaries, look at goal setting, helping them to feel listened and heard. It's an intensive approach in the beginning. Once they've got better self-regulation, they'll then be able to make better decisions. They'll then be able to find what inspires them. And as a result of that, that leads to the kind of character virtues, the civic virtues and performance virtues. Just to follow up, Alex, how intense is the support that you're giving the young people? So every coach will have a maximum caseload of 10 young people and five of which we anticipate being really particularly in need and those other five not needing such intensive support and they will go in every day to the school Um, so they'll go in six hours a day five days a week during term time and then also there'll be touch points in the holidays to ensure that those young people don't go off track. And the conversation we're having today is about character education. So where does that fit within your programme? I think there's a, there's a really nice, neat saying, um, which says connection before correction. So we're working with some of the most vulnerable young people in the UK. Our pilot's going to be in the autumn in North Sheffield. And it's a cold spot for exclusions. There's lots of issues within the community, of kind of a them-us approach between the schools and the families. So in order for us first to be able to teach and develop and allow character education, we first need to get to the root causes of enabling those young people to have connection with the school and with their teachers in order for them then better to be able to develop the intellectual and moral and civic virtues that the Jubilee Centre for Character Education and Virtues does so brilliantly and articulates so well. So that's where we're coming from. So when you take it from the lens of character education, it's about that connection first before the character education elements start, although it's all interlinked. And then, of course, relationships are critical to this and critical to a young person thriving and developing at school. And if the pilot succeeds, what are your plans for the programme in the future, Alex? Well, our aim is to have helped up to 100 young people in the first three years. So it's small numbers, really, but maximum impact. So we are aiming for a 90% reduction in exclusions, a 90% increase in attendance and attainment based on that young person's goal. Beyond that, we are ambitious and we want to go into another uh, area across England, another cold spot for exclusions, um, whilst maintaining our model in, in Sheffield. And then eventually we want to be in a number of different areas. So in 10 years time, we want to have uh, helped up to 500 young people across the country and be developing a very strong relationship with the DfE and trying to help influence government policy by all of our on the ground data about what's worked and what hasn't worked to help feed into policy in order to help create systemic change. Alex, how much is this really about character and how much is it just about and maybe the two things uh, overlap a lot and how much is it just about mentoring and help 
and support and the things that some young people can take for granted, but others just don't have? Well, as the Jubilee Centre will say, character can be taught. I see your point, because I think there are lots of different labels around this. You know, you look at mental regulation, you're looking at building foundations for young people's lives, but also character education. And I think it is intertwined. But I think the idea is that the coaches will help to guide those young people to make better choices, to think, to actually critically. One of the elements of character development is really being able to to self-reflect and critically look at the decisions you made and how you made them. And actually, was that the right decision or was that the wrong decision? And that sort of development of self-awareness and development of yourself and understanding of others is really important for anyone, whether you're an adult or a young person, but particularly if you don't have that role model as 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 a child to be able to guide you. So I think it is very much about building the foundation blocks of character and through that relational model of a coach who's going to be there every day working with that young person and their family and the school. It sounds excellent what you're proposing because it sounds like the kind of support that, well, certainly young people at risk of exclusion should have, but arguably, you know, other young people should have Mm. too. But, But the devil's advocate question is, to what extent are you really having to have kind of ameliorative measures to make up for the terrible structural injustices of society. I mean, in other words, if you are a deeply unequal society where families literally can't afford to feed their kids or whatever, those kids are going to face terrible pressures. Your support sounds very good, but there is also something in the background here, isn't there? You're absolutely right. And it is trying to, I guess, play our part in that and contribute to the wonderful work that many, many other organisations are doing in helping to break down those barriers that have created an unequal society. We really look forward to hearing how your pilot goes. Alex Hanratty, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Jeff. It's been an absolute pleasure. And to round off the conversation, we are joined by guru might be one word, podcaster might be another, and author. His new book, Fortitude, is out now. It's fantastic. It's Bruce Daisley. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Hello. We're doing well. Ed's got microphone envy. Definitely. (laughs) In fact, I got my microphone on a £7 stand from a major internet retailer, and it looks a lot more professional, doesn't it, just having a microphone on a stand? It really does. Just think, Ed, if you got a stand, mm. what could that that could do for the professionalism of our podcast? Definitely. I think we could stretch to it. Yeah. So, Bruce, you've had an interesting trajectory these past few years. So, you were a former, shall we call you a former tech leader? You were head of Twitter in this country, in Europe, I think, a VP at Twitter, at YouTube as well previously. When you left that behind, was this how you saw it going for you? Was it always with a view into looking at the way we think about, I guess, the bit of the pie chart of our lives that is work? I once, at the start of my career, worked in an organisation that had a really good workplace culture. And then I found myself getting the opportunity to go and work for Google. 
Well, I'd seen all the promotion online that it was the best place to work. It was the 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 best workplace culture. There's like a room full of dogs that you can just go and stroke at any time. There's adult candy walls. Yeah, yeah. Pe- people cycling past on tricycles, yes. unicycles, just anything without two wheels. <laughs> Absolutely, you know. So you think, well, they've cracked it. They've worked out how to to make good workplace culture. And broadly, that wasn't my experience. It was it was rather sort of dead behind the eyes to some extent. There was like a bit of affluenza in the sense that everyone had all these perks. Why weren't they happy? And so when I found I had the opportunity to go and work for Twitter, I thought, well, okay, far smaller organization. I wonder if we can try and make the, it as advertised on the, the packet, a good culture to work in. And broadly to jump through the story, it went well for a while. And then it went so spectacularly wrong that I thought, okay, I'm, I wonder if there's anyone who's done any work into this. And I found myself sort of podcasting, researching workplace culture, almost as a sort of self-healing to try and get it back. And that's how I've ended up writing on it now. We're doing an episode of today about character education and which focusing on teaching various virtues. And, and your book, is, in a way, it's quite heretical because you know, you question the way we think about resilience, don't you, in the book? Yeah, for, for me, resilience is a bit like face creams in the sense that the demand for face creams is such that we're, we're very willing to overlook the fact that there's no proven face cream that, that reverses ageing or reduces the impact of ageing. What? <laughs> That's a revelation. <laughs> but we're so willing to overlook it because it was like, okay, well, we want this to happen. So how about the, the magic will somehow get it to happen? And what you'd look into is that I found myself, I was doing a book on resilience. It's largely because I was hearing this word everywhere. And, you know, when I told people I was writing a book about resilience, they rolled their eyes. They said, oh, we've had a resilience training course at work, um, you know, or someone in the NHS told me, if you come into the hospital and you mention resilience, people will thump you because we've been told that resilience is the answer to all of our problems. It's not more money. It's not reduced workloads. It's getting more resilient is the, is the route to our problems. And effectively, what you've got here, you've got an attempt to transfer the blame for something from the people who create it to the people who go through it. Resilience is this attempt to say to individuals, there's nothing wrong with the system, there's something wrong with you. And so so broadly, that's where we've ended up. In truth, so while that architecture of this version of resilience that were peddled, this individualistic responsibility, this almost victim blaming of resilience, while that's been peddled to us, in parallel to that, we do know that this phenomenon of resilience does exist. And we only need to look at these heroic people in Ukraine who were in a suit on a Friday and in army fatigues on a Monday. And we look at them and we think, well, I'm not sure I would have the bravery to do that. You've presented yourself as a paradox, which you think there's a lot of BS said about resilience, but at the same time, it does exist. So go on, what, how do you resolve the paradox? What you find is, as inconvenient as it might be for the people, the the companies, the institutions peddling it, resilience isn't individual, it's collective. Resilience is when we feel part of something, it's when we feel connected, it's when we feel supported by those around us. And so when we see resilience manifested, we see it all the time when natural disasters happen. The first expectation, there's a wonderful American social scientist who passed away a few years ago called Enrico Corantelli. And he used to go to the heart of earthquakes, he used to go to when major 
catastrophes had happened. And he said, you didn't see people screaming and running away with their arms flailing. What you saw was this incredible levelling. Everyone's identity had been reset. We were now just survivors of, of this catastrophe. And it was incredibly emboldening. People did things they can't, couldn't believe they were capable of. So resilience is a collective strength. And as soon as we understand that, then schools can think, well, how can I make children feel supported by each other? There was a wonderful piece of research in the midst of the pandemic. So you've got to rewind the clock to that first start of the pandemic, the very start when it was all a bit crazy. Someone would be sent to get the four pack of loo rolls and then someone would be making an evening meal. And there's a woman uh, who studies in the US, she studies the well-being of teenagers. Uh, Jean Twenge and you know her work over the last few years has really catalogued the decline of well-being for teenagers but but really intriguingly in the start of the pandemic in the first six eight weeks of the pandemic she found that teenagers who were having a family meal at home every day I recognize that's not the privilege of everyone but teenagers who were sitting down and sharing a meal with the families their resilience went up their depression went down, their well-being improved. Resilience is feeling connected to the people around us. And as soon as we understand that, then we can think, okay, well, this really helps us firstly understand what's going wrong with organisations, helps us understand what's going wrong in, in the, the focus that we're putting on trying to solve these things. You can see why people are attracted to the idea of resilience because it's so strong in the culture. If you think about an athlete going through the Rocky style montage thing, that if they just do it and keep pushing and they'll become tough and in, in this case, mentally tough, which sort of discounts the extent to which personality and, and intelligence are, are in fact malleable. But it's an attractive idea for people. It's so interesting you bring up athletes. So at the, the start of the book, the first thing I do is I'm so intrigued by these hero stories that we've got, that, you know, these unique, special individuals. UK Sport did this really fascinating piece of research about a decade ago now, which looked into the biographies of what they said were household name British athletes. So they studied 16 super elite athletes. These are gold medal winners and 16 elite athletes. These were uh, medal winners, but probably bronze or silver. And what they found was that all of the super elite athletes, all of them, 100% of them, had a significant moment of childhood trauma. What happens in these people, these are the exceptions. The vast majority of people who suffer childhood trauma suffer really adverse life outcomes. And there is a very small number of people who've got a combination of this trauma and an elite talent who are able to direct it into their talent. And so we we love these stories, but what you generally find is these people are the exception who are able to direct their talent into almost build, rebuilding their shattered identity. Actually, these stories are potentially quite dangerous for us because we look at them and we we sort of snip out the highlights and we neglect to look at the real impact of, of the whole lifetime experience. There was some really enlightening work done on this by a couple of American doctors. They did this really interesting exercise where they attempted to try and work out to unpick the impact of trauma. So they created what was called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Index. You go through this list of 10 and then you give yourself uh, a score and it's called your ACE score. Well, people who have an ACE score of seven, they live 20 years shorter lives than people who have an ACE score of zero. People who have an ACE score of four are 33 times more likely to have educational problems at school. 
So trauma it really evidently leads to negative health outcomes. It's a really intriguing thing because firstly, it enables us to understand, wow, the lived experience of different individuals can have this massive impact on where their life goes, on how life plays out. I think the most heartening thing about it is that understanding it seems to be the route to solving it. The experience of trauma is quite often shame. It's this sense that your your self-identity is shattered. But the, the sooner you can understand the processes that are going on there, it enables you to resurrect your sense of self, to, to recognise that this isn't about you, this is about your experience. And so actually, the more that we understand about trauma, the more liberating that knowledge is to get people out of their personal situation. So if there's this bogus version of resilience, which has been commodified and sold to shift the weight of responsibility in corporate culture, and then there's this resilience, which is fetishized based on an, an atypical experience of trauma survivors, what is the positive virtues? What is the way we should be thinking about a, a more kind of pure resilience or, or maybe fortitude, as your book title says. Maybe maybe, maybe that's the word to, yeah. to use. I, and I only use that word because there's such weariness about resilience. It's sort of merely to say, okay, let's, let's ignore that word and move on. Look, th- this, um, there's some work that was done by, uh, around the turn of a century by an American psychologist called Robert Putnam, and it probably holds now. He talked about how health generally comes from feeling part of a group. He said, for example, if you're a smoker, but you're not part of a group, I'd advise you to start grouping before you start quitting. And I think there's some truth in that for everyone. When we witness colleagues at work who are having a bad time, the biggest indicator of whether you enjoy your job is whether you've got a friend at work. And it's like seeing people who you feel understood by, you feel that you you want to spend time with. And I think that is a critical lesson for all of us right now. To some extent, the early part of COVID was quite good at that. We found ourselves, for good or for bad now, but we found ourselves on WhatsApp groups with neighbours. We felt a sense that we were looking out for each other. That sense of connection with other people, I think, is th- probably the most powerful lesson. So, you know, for me, the, the, the way I've thought about my own life is it's made me think about, okay, well, the passions I've got, how can I direct them into making sure that they're a part of my life where I do them with other people rather than it's very easy to end up in a declining level of connectedness as you go through your life and and feeling disconnected from those around you. Can I ask you, Bruce, doing this work, writing this book made you think differently about your own experiences in your life? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So absolutely. It's made me sort of value friendship far higher. It's made me very aware that maybe trying to, to, put something together of a group of friends isn't necessarily an annoying detail on the bottom of my to-do list, but it's actually a a highlight of what I want to do. So understanding that I think has been really helpful for me. Really good. Any other tips for us? Fortitude tips? I think schools and organisations can get caught up in trends and, you know, growth mindset being one of them. You know, I, I as I was going through the curriculums of schools and the school websites, I struggled to find a British school that didn't have growth mindset on on its website somewhere. And it's been appropriated by business. It's been used everywhere. And the research for growth mindset is pretty sketchy. In parallel with that, we know that when kids feel part of something, 
one one of the most potent things for any organization, whether it's a school, a company, a family, is when you feel we're all in it together, right? That sense of feeling a shared goal, a, a shared sense that, that we're all in it together is really critical for any group. Um, and I think if schools were able to engender a sense of that in their pupils, I think and not just pupils, but you know any of us in organizations thinking about how can how can we feel like we're all in this together, I think is a really critical lesson because that seems to be what's most protective of us. Well, I'm buying this big style. <laughs> I am, and people should buy the book. Um, it is really, really interesting, Bruce. And, um, and also I think quite sort of liberating because I think it's sort of basically saying, you know, that you've got to be really careful not to make this about the fault of the person. Uh, so thank you so much, Bruce Daisley. Thank you. Well, what did you think? How's your character? Well, I, I feel that I am of a good moral fibre. I'm not sure about that. I don't know. I'll tell you what, when I saw we were going to do this episode on character in education, I, it did almost feel, before I knew what it was, like, oh, we're going to be talking, is this a bit Victorian, the idea of good character? Is it about getting back to a certain type of value or even British value that, that didn't really exist in the, the first place? And... Um, and I've come away understanding that it's not that at all. And it's 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 an exciting idea, really, about the connections we have with each other and the strength of those connections. And then that how that leads a workplace, in Bruce's case, or, or a school, or even a society to behave, I guess. I don't mean that in terms of good behaviour, bad behaviour. I mean, it's so interesting, this, because... First of all, I'm not one for slogans, but I don't know whether character education is the right way of describing this because it sounds very it sounds very individualizing and I suppose I found Bruce an absolute revelation if I'm honest. He's fantastic, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he was sort of saying, "Well, hang on a minute. Let's not describe this in a way that makes it sound like it's the fault of the individual." It's with collective support that you can develop resilience. It's not well, fortitude. Well, it's, it's, it's the difference between thinking, uh, being saying um, you, you need to build your own umbrella and the, the group thinking, okay, group shelter for everyone, the, the group providing the shelter for everyone, right? I, or I guess it's like your own resilience or individual fortitude is not some thing that you either have or you, does, or you don't have it comes from the extent to which you're supported by others. The extent to which people face these issues of resilience and so on is is massively defined by the structural inequalities we face. You know, that's another sense in which Bruce is right, that we can't just make it somehow, you know, the fault of the individual, you know, because, you know, if you're growing up in terrible poverty and so on, then, you know, you face a whole set of barriers and and difficulties that you just don't face if you're in a wealthy family. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. As we said at the beginning of this episode, this whole idea of character education uh, is is new to us. I'd love to hear what you think about it, if you've got any thoughts on how it could be developed, how else it could be applied, or on anything that you think we should be doing here on the podcast, uh, you can email us through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com, which is exactly what Rachel did. Uh, Rachel says, G'day, Ed and Jeff. G'day. 
What did you think of my uh, Australian accent there? Mm. It's not good. I can't do any accent or any impersonation. Hmm. Unlike you, man of 999 voices. Exactly. Rachel says, I only discovered you by chance last year and I'm slowly trying to catch up to the present day. Quiet, uninterrupted moments, few and far between, with three primary school age children vying for my attention. I've no idea how you would do that with three. I, I struggle with one. Can I just say, can I just say that I'm sorry to anticipate, but the next line sort of stole my heart. Well, here is that next line. My family and I are about to leave the northwest coast of Australia for Mauritius, having decided to take a couple of years out to sail around the world. I mean, that is amazing. Can you imagine? Like, just think what you're giving your family by doing that. I know we did. We, funnily enough, I mean, it did, I, I think neither my career nor Justine's really lent itself to it. But we we did sometimes talk about what how amazing it would be to do mm. that. I don't necessarily mean sail because I think I would be very bad at that and I don't think we'd get very far, but, you know, travel. I mean, you could maybe try a canal barge holiday and see how it goes. Maybe. maybe yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I think you'd have trouble getting to sort of Mauritius yeah. <laughs> on a canal barge. My geography may not be great, but I think that'd be hard. Um, Rachel says, I hope to make further inroads into my episode backlog whilst doing Nightwatch. I've been moved and inspired by the books of authors you've featured in your episodes along the way, so much that I intend to pursue a new career in politics or activism once we return isn't that amazing yeah can i make a serious suggestion it would be really nice to hear from rachel in these next couple of years as she as she goes around the world and where she goes we want to see the photos she could be our sort of roving correspondent correspondent at large yeah a correspondent at sea is she circumnavigating the globe not quite i don't but... quite know but i mean it's just a couple of years out to sail around the world i mean that does sound pretty oh it really does it yeah. really does yeah. Uh, Rachel says, I personally would advocate for more economic related discussions. I immigrated to Australia from the UK in my early 20s, and I'm horrified as to what has become of it since then. Uh, the millions of people dependent on food banks is reprehensible, only with widespread awareness of what really underpins inequality and the climate crisis can we begin to challenge this order. I would love to hear you talk to Jason Hickel, his book, The Divide, and the travesty that is development aid, having moved me considerably. Uh, aspects of Keynesian are also begging for revival, as touched on by your Green New Deal show. I was enthralled by Zachary D. Carter's challenge on entrenched free market ideology in the price of peace, money, democracy and the life of John Maynard Keynes. And I would love to wow. see an episode on a similar vein. Well, that, I mean, that sounds like your summer reading list. A bit well beyond mine. I mean, that is quite a that's quite an email, I'd say. I slightly fall, fell out of love with her at the PPS. Not really, but you PPS. know what I mean. Also, for the love of Tim Tams, please yeah. tell me that you've ceased to advocate the make-your-own-sandwich shop idea. <laughs> you must be the only person in the world who prefers the taste of their own food over someone else's. Well, there you go. <laughs> it's just it's just another nail in the coffin for the old make-your-own-sandwich idea, isn't it? You've gone right off Rachel there. No, no, I haven't. Anyway, thank you, Rachel, for that. G- genuinely, we'd love to hear from you as you... Yeah. Go on your incredible journey, don't you think? Definitely, if you want to do it by Morse, Morse code, do it by Morse code, we can decode it. And what your kids make of it as well. Right, now this relates back to my reason to be cheerful is from Andrew Riker. I hope I pronounced that right. A subject, it was me, dear Ed and Jeff. In, in, in a recent episode, Ed said that on his way home from taking his son to his last day at primary school, he met a man on the street listening to the podcast who stopped and suggested a bungee cord and solution to the fox problem with the food waste bin. That was me. He was that angel who changed the whole direction yeah. of the Miliband family life. 
Yeah, and he says, since the first lockdown in March 2020, I've taken to walking between one and two hours on and around the heath every single day. That's Hampstead Heath, rain or shine. Reasons to be cheerful to be my constant companion. I haven't missed an episode since then. I want to thank you for informing me, entertaining me, sometimes confusing me, but always <laughs> making me think for more than two years. For me, all of all our biggest problems, the biggest two are the climate crisis and the, fa- the fact that too many working people in our country and around the world aren't paid enough to live a decent life. Well, it actually very much fits with... Um, uh, with, with with what Rachel was saying, doesn't it? It really does. Um, uh, and he said he was blown away by the recent episode on holding out for a zero and recent related news stories and thanks us for being his constant walking companion. Well, what two lovely emails, model emails, I would say, don't you think, Jeff? Absolutely. More like that, please. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. It's over so quickly. The summer. How diddly do. I know, but you did send uh, this afternoon, you sent an email uh, about the nights drawing in and uh, summer over and data on how summer went. From an American perspective, I think. Yes. And pickleball. Mm. People have heard, will have heard on the podcast. I mean, honestly, maybe it's just because I read the New York Times a lot. But pickleball seems to be taking all before it. I just wonder whether... Have we have I canvassed this idea with you? I mean, given that Make Your Own Sandwich has been well and truly sort of done over by uh, Rachel in her email. Um, maybe like Ed and Jeff's pickleball courts... That's our next entrepreneurial move. What do you think? Yeah, can you remind me what the accoutrement of pickleball are? Would we be hiring stuff out like... It's like half a tennis court and a, like a wiffle ball and a racket, I think. Yeah. Well, I suppose two or four rackets. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd happily man the store with the rackets and the balls. Shall we thank our guests? Yes, let's thank our guests. Thanks to Beck Teague. Alex Hanratty and Bruce Daisley. It was a great conversation. And do let us know your thoughts on it. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer produces all the content for our podcast. Uh, and she's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 